Hello, everyone. Welcome to On Crime and Punishment. This is a podcast from the Center for Criminological Research at the University of Alberta. In this episode, Dr. Kevin Haggerty talks with William Schultz, a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology at the University of Alberta and a recipient of both the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation Doctoral Scholarship and the Vanier Canada Doctoral Scholarship. Will conducts research in Canadian jails, interviewing prisoners and staff about how fentanyl and major security concerns impact everyday life experiences in the prison setting. And they'll be chatting about his work and also about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating in the Apple Podcast Store. It helps uh, move us up in the search algorithm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter as well, at CCR underscore U of A. And please subscribe to our YouTube channel and like our videos. That's youtube.com slash C slash Center for Criminological Research. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome, everyone. Uh, We are very fortunate today to continue our discussions with uh, William Schultz. Uh, Will is a graduate student at the University of Alberta and a Trudeau Fellow, and he has uh, an interesting background that he brings to questions about incarceration. So, hi, Will. Thanks for uh, joining me and us today. Uh, Maybe just a good place to start is just tell us or the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, who you are, and uh, maybe some of your research interests. Uh, Yes, the crazy story of how the heck did I get the year. Uh, back in the day uh, when I was uh, looking for a part-time job as a summer student in my undergrad, I ended up working as a part-time correctional officer. I, did, I never really expected it to go it turn into what it has today, but uh, I spent five years working as a correctional officer, and after five years in the prison, I moved on to graduate school. Uh, I've been really lucky to be able to work with uh, Dr. Uh, Kevin Haggerty and uh, Dr. Sandra Saris, and Kevin, you're no secret to this, you're hosting this, of course, but... Uh, and through that, I've been able to use some of my own experiences as well as their expertise to get back into uh, some prisons in Western Canada and do a lot of interviews uh, in those spaces. So I've had the rather unique opportunity, privilege, whatever it may be, to interview people I used to work with as well as people, some people who used to be on my units as uh, prisoners. So I've had a rather unique uh, opportunity to see the experience of prison from both uh, the side of a professional working in the prison, as well as uh, an academic research uh, in, in prison. And, and some of your own research interests, things that you've explored or have been paying attention to? Sure. Uh, one of the things that really fascinated me uh, when I was working in prison and in my early years was this idea of people joining radical and extremist groups while they were in prison. And the topic of radicalization in prison was a very hot one a few years ago. I was able to do quite a bit of research on that. It's currently publishing some work again with doctors uh, Hagdi and Viserius. I also do quite a lot of work around kind of prison as a workplace. What, what is the experience of correctional officers in prison? Uh, there's a lot of research on, on prisoners and on prison experiences and justifiably so, but uh, some authors uh, have described prison, prison, uh, prison workers, correctional officers, as sort of the invisible ghosts of criminology. They're there, we all know they're there, but people don't really do a lot of research or study them. 
So I've had the unique opportunity to do a lot of work, uh, interviews with correctional officers. And so what I'm starting to do is tease out some of the, the dynamics of what does it mean to work as a correctional officer? What does it mean to go to work in a place, in a prison every day where it's often quite volatile, it's often quite violent. There's a lot of different structural pressures and yet you're expected to, to do this, in a, in a, you're expected to do the best you can in a situation that's often very volatile and unstable. So a lot of my, my current PhD work is just teasing out some of the complexities of that to try and give us a better picture of how prisons in Canada function. Because right now we, we don't have a clear picture of one side of the story, which is problematic when we're trying to talk about reform efforts or anything else. Great, thanks. Uh, the, this podcast in some ways was initiated um, in, a con in the context of COVID and thinking about what COVID had changed, what it, if it had changed anything, uh, challenges, et cetera. So maybe I just get your sense of what, at the big picture level, your sense of what the COVID situation is in uh, Canadian institutions. I would argue, and, and perhaps I'm speculating, but I would argue that prisons are some of the most heavily impacted institutions in Canada with when it comes to COVID outside of hospitals, long-term care institutions and the like. Uh, if you read the news every day, you'll see a news story about um, a massive COVID outbreak at a different prison. Uh, I've, I've seen stories recently about uh, prisoner uprisings or unrest over uh, restrictions over COVID. It's a very significant issue. There's community spread, of course, because if you uh, take people out of the community, place them in a COVID hotspot, which is essentially what prisons and remand centers across Canada are right now, and then release them back into the community, it's actually something that starts to, to increase spread. So I, it's difficult to say with certainty exactly what the picture is. Um, after all, uh, even prisoners aren't able to get visitors right now. It's hard to talk to anybody who's, who's working or, or living behind walls right now. So it's, it's very difficult to say concretely what happened or what is happening out there. But I think in the coming years, as we're able to get a better picture of what's going on right now, we're going to realize that COVID in Canadian prisons is actually being something of an underreported crisis. But you, you do maintain some contact with some of your former colleagues who uh, worked as correctional officers, right? Oh, yes, I do. I, I, have, I have talked to them quite a lot about their experiences, about what's going on. I'm trying to get a general feel about what's what's happening in there. Right. So, so continuing that, um, what do you think about are, are some of the major issues or concerns for correctional officers in the current kind of COVID institutional uh, situation? I, uh, the, the impression I've gotten from my, my contacts is that there, there's a number of major factors that they're worried about that they're, that kind of make the situation more volatile, that they struggle with and that they're not really sure how to deal with. Uh, the first, and I think obviously the largest, is the risk of being infected well at work. There was a headline uh, a couple months ago about a correctional officer here in Western Canada who uh, passed away after catching COVID. Nobody, nobody knows whether or not he actually caught that at work, but from even the limited contact and the talk that I've had with other correctional officers, they talk about this as being a significant concern, going to work, catching uh, something, and then in the end, bringing it home. And that's the second large concern is that it's one thing to go to a job and do a, do a job where you personally are at risk, and, but it's quite something else to bring that risk back home that would impact your family with it. So 
I get the I, what I've heard is that there's a lot of people who are quite concerned about the potential of catching COVID at work and then going home and accidentally or pretend or uh, accidentally infecting your family and your loved ones or the like. And this kind of leads. Sorry. Do you, do you get a sense of how they're responding as a result of this? Well, from what I've heard, there's a lot of people who are off. So there's a lot of people who are not going to work with, if they feel sick, if they have any sort of exposure, they're locked down. So people are talking about sometimes up to a quarter of a shift is all of a sudden locked down and not able to go to work because they, they have that uh, potential exposure. Another very big. Uh, can, I, can I just pause you there? So, sure. so the 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 incarcerated folks are being locked down because of the understaffing. Is that what you're saying? There's, I, I don't know that for sure. I suspect there are some cases. Uh, it, it, again, though, I, I you have right now in order to understand exactly what the COVID policies are in prison, you kind of have to extrapolate from the ways that correctional institutions have dealt with this in the past. Right. And absolutely, in the past, if there's any sort of staff shortage. The first thing you do is you lock down the entire institution. So you only have to have one officer on a unit instead of the usual two to three. Right. Um, and so from what I've heard, there have been lockdowns. In fact, uh, there was news recently in uh, the Drumheller Institution, a uh, federal penitentiary is in the midst of something not far off of prisoner protests because they've been locked down for so long as a result of COVID and as a result of uh, kind of short staffing as, and, and the like. Yes, there's increased lockdowns because of COVID exposure, but there's also increased, there will be increased lockdowns if there's any sort of staff shortage, especially if there's an outbreak in an institution, which there's many. Right. Uh, another, large, another large factor at play though is uh, correctional officers who are choosing to opt out. So of course, uh, essential workers, many of them do have the option not to work if they're concerned about the concerned about the risk that COVID presents to their families or to themselves. And from what I've heard, uh, a significant portion of the most senior correctional officers in many institutions have chosen to opt out. So this kind of exacerbates some of the problems because not only may you be facing staff shortages because of what's going on in the infection, but a significant portion of your senior staff, the ones who have the most experience are, and are typically the ones who are most effective in managing issues um, politely, I'll put it, the ones that have the most experience in creating and uh, talking their way through issues may not even be in the institution. Right. So this has, I mean, there have been tremendous consequences and changes for um, incarcerated folks in the institutions. I'm curious about how some of these might also have implications for the men and women working in these institutions. So, for example, um, you mentioned a second ago lockdowns. So, if you're if there's a system where there's perpetual lockdowns for the incarcerated folks, that produces all kinds of problems and issues for them. But how does this translate to for uh, the staff? Well, perversely, uh, some correctional officers I've spoken to have described it as a very easy time because everybody's locked down. There's no programs. There's no visits. You go to work. You do very little for a few hours. You let people out to go to the bathroom. You let people out to go for exercise occasionally. Um, and then you lock them back up. So on one hand, it's very easy. There's nothing to do. <laughs> but on the other hand, it, it's, a, it's always kind of a Faustian bargain in prison. If there's less to do, it, on one hand, it's, it's easier for you, but on the other hand, the trade-off is a far, is a significantly increase in volatility. 
Um, prison often works kind of in this, uh, especially sentence prisons like the ones where I work, where there's significant amounts of uh, programming. It often works in kind of a carrot and a stick mentality. If you behave, if you do as we ask, if you follow the rules, you're allowed to go for programming. You're allowed to go for visits. You're allowed to get all the privileges. You're allowed to get all your canteen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The issue that we face with COVID is that essentially COVID has removed all of the carrots. The only carrot that might potentially be left for prisoners in uh, the middle of the, uh, the pandemic is access to your canteen uh, supplies, which things like chocolate bars, canteen, uh, ramen noodles, things like that. But this this has a big impact. So there's no there's no programs for incarcerated people. Again, the correctional officers, some of them may say, well, that's easy for us. We don't have to worry about sending people out to programs. We just keep them locked up. But lack of programs mean people get bored and frustrated. People uh, when people are locked down, either because of staff shortages or because of uh, COVID-related outbreaks. On one hand, you're locking people down. You're preventing them from spreading the, the disease. On the other hand, you're making them bored, frustrated, and volatility continues to increase. Again. People in uh, most institutions, from what I understand, there's been no family visits of any sort for uh, incarcerated people since at least March of 2020. We're approaching a year. Some people haven't seen their families, their loved ones for a year. Again, in some senses it's easy, but the volatility is continually increasing. And then finally, there's this idea, this uh, healthcare access um, within prisons. It's, most prisons have their own kind of dedicated medical personnel. Uh, most of them are either, I know in uh, the province where I'm based, I believe they're hired in, by the provincial health authority. They're not just prison um, prison nurses, but the fact is, it's are are is the healthcare levels the same? Are the healthcare workers the healthcare workers are facing many of the same issues um, that correctional officers and, and uh, healthcare workers across the country are facing? So are prisoners able to access the necessary health care that they really need? It's perhaps a little bit of a, a bargain. And so in essence, what, I'm, what I described here is, well, how does this impact CEOs? You've just said that the job is way easier for them as a result of COVID. Yes, but again, when there's the carrot and the stick, you always use the carrot to prevent the outbreaks. You prevent violence to prevent people from snapping and going off. So what I speculate, and again, I have to speculate because the contacts I get are a little limited. You hear one side of the story. You don't know what the statistics are. But I suspect that although there may be less things going on on a day-to-day -day basis, I would be shocked if there wasn't very high levels of volatility. There weren't more fights. There wasn't a lot of frustration. If there wasn't uh, heightened levels of assaults, simply because people don't have any other options. In essence, what if you want to look at it, I think what COVID has done for programming in the uh, in prisons in Western Canada, at the very least, has probably taken it back to a point about, of about 30 or 40 years where people didn't have programming in prisons and so and, or didn't have visits. And I think essentially what COVID has unintentionally done is taken us back to that point. Do you, do you get any sense or heard anything about sort of like um, de facto decarceration that maybe fewer people, maybe judges are sentencing fewer people to institutions, or maybe there's a sense in which people are being released earlier. Is this, is this something that kind of you've, you've heard of? Yes. Um, from what I, again, one of the other points that people have talked about, uh, the, the prison officers I've talked to, uh, have talked about it. There's a lot less people working. There's a lot less prisoners. 
Um, there are people, instead of being sent to remand institutions to be held for trial, they're being held in the community. And in essence, I think the way you put it, the question is, is well put. It's, we have essentially begun to engage in this sort of accidental social experiment where we are practicing with decarcerating people. We're holding a lot less people. So again, on one hand, that's good. It gives a lot more space. There's likely to be, at least in some institutions, less incidences of double and triple bunking, which is was fairly common up until a while before the pandemic. That's less likely. But at the same time, the people who are being held in the prisons may also be of a more volatile uh, sort, where there really is no other, right. or at least ostensibly no other legal option except to hold them in prison, which, again, there's always checks and balances. Less people, yes, but uh, perhaps a more volatile uh, brand of individuals, it's hard to say how that's going to play out. So right, so you're saying so if, you, if we if we release the low risk, which we should be doing, the result is that sort of the more all the prisons are full of the more high risk people. Yeah, so, yeah. And 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 I think there's a there's a lot to be said. The the dynamics you have in prisons, people often think of prisons as this kind of place apart, and and they are, but with this entirely different culture, which to a certain extent it exists. But the fact is that you have people who you still have people who are widely considered to be the good people or the bad people, the, the good, or in, in the terms of the correctional officers, the good cons or the hardcore cons. And so if you don't have enough of the quote unquote good cons, the ones you can actually work with, the ones where you can build relationships and build a positive kind of relationship to help smooth out some of the kinks within the unit to make things work, to have people go for programming, you tend to end up with a lot more fighting, a lot more back and forth, a lot more confrontation. The, the experiment here is, it's not a, I, I'm actually thinking, and I look at this, uh, I look at this sort of decarceration experiment we're doing, it may be accidental, but I think it's a really important experiment to see, I think it's something we really do need to look at instead of just going back to doing um, prison the way we did, where we just lock people up for, for limited, lock people up at the same levels we were doing. Let's reduce the numbers. Let's find out if that has an impact on prisons, whether that has an impact on crime rates in the community. And I, th I think it's a really unique moment where we can start doing some experiments with this. So at, at this, speaking of unique moment, at the moment that we're recording this, Canada is starting to roll out the vaccine and we're in the early stages of this. Um, prisons are part of this kind of framework. I'm wondering how correctional officers are thinking about kind of the logistics of this or how you're thinking about the logistics of this. And then the other side of this is also, you know, as we've seen the last week or two, there's also a politics to who gets encouraged, excuse me, who gets inoculated in these institutions. So maybe you want to say something about, about the whole vaccine situation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, the vaccine situation around prisons has really brought some of the social tension in Canada to, to the forefront around punishment, around prisons, all this sort of stuff. So first off, I mean, the actual brass tacks of the fact are that prisons, at least um, prisons don't appear to be on the first list of vaccine, of vaccine recipients. Prison officers aren't on that. Uh, healthcare workers in prisons don't appear to be on that. So although uh, the first kind of wave of vaccines that's coming in uh, is, is really targeted towards essential workers and especially healthcare workers, prison, prisons and prisoners are not, and prison workers are not on that list. However, 
And then, as you say, there's been a lot of politics around this topic. So, for instance, Aaron O'Toole, who's the Conservative leader uh, of the Conservative Party of Canada, um, was recently on Twitter um, making quite a lot of noise about how incarcerated people and prisoners shouldn't get vaccines before anybody else does. And there's been a lot of social dialogue, a lot of scuttlebutt around this topic about should prisoners get the vaccine? When should prisoners get the vaccine? How should they get them? Should only um, prison workers get them? Should How should it work? I argue, I would look at this and I think that we're actually overlooking a fair, some fairly major factors in when we start engaging in that sort of dialogue. First, if you want to do a hotspot map of uh, outbreaks across Canada, you're going to have a lot of map, a lot of buttons that sit straight on top of prisons. Prisons right now are hotspots. There's so much interpersonal travel, can, uh, so much interpersonal connection. There's not really room to, to distance for six feet unless you're locked up alone in your cell. Um, it's very difficult to follow all your uh, contact and PPE stuff because people are, there's, there really is a communal, it's all communal. There's not like those individual spaces. And so as a result, you, you inevitably end up with massive outbreaks. But with prisons, you have people leaving all the time. This isn't something where you can just lock it down and you can lock somebody down. If somebody catches COVID and then they're released, they're taking that COVID from the prison back into the community. So, um, and then on to, as well, I think one of the things we should look at is with correctional officers, they're going back and forth from the community and they're going back and forth to the prison, to the community. So prison officers as well have this sort of dialogue where you're working in a hotspot and you may be going back out into different, into different places. So we have a lot of political dialogue and there's a lot of dialogues about um, we shouldn't vaccinate prisoners before people who are more deserving. But I think if we engage in that, we're actually missing a really important point. And that's if we don't try to vaccinate in these hotspots to try and tamp the numbers down, prisons are going to start exporting COVID potentially to other spaces and other places because people, people don't just go to prison and go away. People go to prison and then they come back out. And that's a really important thing to remember when we're having these dialogues. So personally, I think um, we should actually highlight prisons as a space to be to get vaccines as soon. It, as soon as possible, in fact. Um, and again, another major factor at play here is that most of the people in prison uh, are vulnerable. They come from vulnerable populations. So when they leave prisons, they're not just going back to a nowhere. They're going back to often places uh, with people who are highly vulnerable to COVID. So if you catch it and then take it back to your community, <laughs> you could be uh, creating and inflaming the pandemic already. Right. Uh, and then it, it's it's a very, it's tricky legal ground. You can't hold people um, beyond these certain points, but I think rather than politicize the dialogue and say, oh, these people don't deserve to get it because they're in prison. I think instead we should take a larger kind of public health outlook on this. Say, actually, no, this for the health of all Canadians, this is actually a really important point. Right. And of course, correctional officers are a part of that um, group they're part of that kind of uh they're part of the dynamic and i think um it's important to get them vaccines as well to prevent um further spread and also to prevent kind of these issues where you have large portions of the group that are unable to go to work because they've been exposed to covid well at work or something similar yeah well you mentioned the vulnerability and it made me think it's, it's not just that prisons are hot spots but the the people the men and women who are incarcerated in these institutions we have decades of research showing, show, research showing that these people are disproportionately have poor health. 
which places them at high, the highest risk for actually more serious or even fatal consequences should they get infected. So there's a whole other kind of dimension to it. I mean, the, the O'Toole thing, uh, it's sort of a kind of lesser eligibility thing. Like they're, they're the, the deserving, it's the deserving and the undeserving kind of figures into it again in these kind of politicized discussions. Well, I mean, it's no secret to you, Kevin. Um, you've read, I've, you've written on this, and I've and we've read, talked about this extensively. But prison in Canada often serves as a place for people with real, who are really in vulnerable situations go to recuperate and get clean and figure stuff out. And people talk about getting off of drugs and cleaning up while they're in jail. And uh, I was recently I was working on a paper, and a quote just jumped off the paper from an incarcerated man I interviewed, which was. Prisons like where I go to get better. Prison helps me to find me and rebuild myself. So we're the lesser eligibility thing. Yeah, absolutely. There's this old dialogue about well, should you deserve it? Or <laughs> I think perhaps if we talk, if we get trapped up in talking this idea of well, do who deserves vaccines? We may miss the larger point, which is that we already have a crisis on our hands. Instead of talking about whether people deserve it, we should yeah. probably address the crisis first. Yeah, I mean, like I'm, I'm 100% with you. Let's let's strip the moralism from this kind of stuff and uh, think about just the health risks. Yeah. Um, so looking back, we're you know we're we're close to a year into this now. Uh, uh, only you, a year, only a year. <laughs> so, so what do you think um, Canadian institutions might have done differently? I mean, this is the kind of perfect hindsight question but you know what might what what might have they done differently what are the lessons learned it's a very tricky one to answer this one I, uh, the, the coward's answer here is well i don't know nothing mm -hmm. um the fact is i don't think any of us were really ready for this global pandemic i don't think any of us were ready for this sort of um massive outbreak and massive changes and ironically i would argue from from my own experience so I, I was working in the prisons when the h1n1 outbreak came through in 2013 uh and i remember the prison and the healthcare staff who worked there were very very ready to to, to deal with an h1n1 outbreak they had they were placing people in isolation if they were showing symptoms they they did a very good job healthcare wise that said um so i think I don't know how else you could have done it within the institutions, because from my experience and from what I've seen, the institutions were generally ready to, to prevent limited outbreaks. And I think in the early days of the pandemic, we saw that we didn't see large scale outbreaks in the pan in prisons until right. um, probably six, five, six months into the uh, into the pandemic. That said, what could they have done differently? <laughs> I don't think anybody was prepared for this to have dealt to have lasted for a year. And I think one of the major issues we're currently seeing is that prisons were not prepared to deal with this for the length of time they have. So I think one of the biggest things that they did um, that was excellent that worked was this sort of cat, this decarceration idea where, right. which mostly does sit with uh, judges and legal offices. Um, because that's not it's not the prison's decision about who goes to prison it ends up being a decision of the courts and essentially the courts are the ones that have started to uh place people into different situations instead of being remanding into custody um i think that's been the probably the best decision and they've started they started doing that very early in the process like in march and april um but as as for other preparations frankly i just think that this more than anything shows that 
prisons aren't capable of dealing with this sort of this sort of issue. And it's especially the case when you look down into the states where they've had even less controls and there's stories about prisons closing and then busing prisons prisoners to other institutions because they can't get enough, they can't keep enough staff and too many staff are sick mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing. So looking to the future, um, what, I guess, are there things that, are, that that come out of this that we might interpret as, as positive or learning opportunities? I think yes. Um, well, I mean, there, there's that, uh, everybody's heard that, that uh, crazy saying this year, every crisis has an opportunity at its core, never let a good uh, crisis go to waste. Right. Um, I think that what we really, I think what we've done here, and we've talked about this already here, but I do not think we can underestimate the importance of this sort of quasi-decarceration experience that we've run. Uh, I think that we have, I think we need to look very carefully at the statistics. I think we need to look very carefully at how this has worked or not worked and see whether this is actually a legitimate and reasonable path forward for institutions across the country. Um, I think that uh, for correctional officers, it's a bit trickier to say if there's a specific thing because in essence, they go to job work and they do their job as as they can. This may hasten sort of the changing of the guard as many of the kind of baby boomer generations start retiring. Right. Um, this could be one where people take retirement a little early rather than continue to work. That may be positive, it may be negative. It's, it's difficult to say. Uh, but I think for, for I think this has the potential to considerably shift the way we do incarceration if we take the lessons of this experience to heart. That said, it's also one where we need to be very conscious that the public's appetite for punishment sometimes may be stronger than, than we as criminologists care to discuss. As criminologists, we like to believe that, oh, look, this is wonderful. We've got people out of jail. That's not always the way that political dialogues work. And I think that this is something that very quickly will become a uh, election platform tool, especially as there's a lot of potential for an election here in Canada over the next year. This may be a tough on crime fill the prisons back up. We've got all this space. What are the police doing or not doing? That could that could very quickly become uh, another uh, element that will um, blow up here. So, so. so do you think, I mean, I, do you think that those political pressures, and I agree with you, I think that, that um, sometimes criminologists are out of touch with what um, the general public wants. And I don't think that's a problem. I just think that it's, it, it's a reality. Um, uh, but do you, does that suggest that the sort of the the, de, the de, informal decarceration might just be a historical blip, and that touch wood when things get, people you know when things become back to normal, uh, that sort of we'll go back to our formal former patterns? And I realize you know we're blue skying here. We don't. Of course. Work. You know it's going to take political will. Um, it's possible. I I think the. What I what I think will happen is that we it'll go back to normal, and that's what I I don't I think the easiest uh, decision tends to be the one of least resistance, and the path of least resistance in this question in this case is well all right we've got these prisons we've got these expensive prisons they're sitting empty well it's time to start incarcerating people again. What I hope and what I sincerely think that it's very important. I think this is a massively important moment for all the stakeholders who are involved in the criminal justice system. So I'm talking courts, judges, lawmakers, oh. police, chiefs, 
everybody, corrections, everybody. I think it's very important for people to get down, get together, sit down and take a good hard look at the statistics and find out what is going on. Because from my vantage point, from what I'm seeing, I don't see massive levels of social disorganization because we and crime everywhere simply because we have uh, fewer people in jail than we did a year ago. Right. Um, in fact, I don't see very many differences at all. I mean, is that because I don't have the statistics in front of me? Potentially. Right. Is, could it potentially be, be because what we've done is actually um, still working? It very well could be. So I think this is a really important moment to take a hard look and find out, is this a sustainable change? Is this a sustainable moment? Is this something that we can turn into the future of prisons in Canada rather than simply running back the way we've always done it? We have a really unique moment here. To, we've done the social experiment sort of against our will. Now, instead of ignoring the fact that we've just done the social experiment, Let's take a look at the data and find out what that shows us and how we can and should do business. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I mean, I'll tell you my worry is that I my worry is that you know things will generally go well. I mean that most, I mean, almost everyone who gets released is not going to be involved in high level violent crimes. But my concern is that there will be a horror story that one person who was released will do some atrocious things and that this will get worked up. In the conservative press, or as the, a, a signal crime to you know the the oh look the you know our experiment failed people are being released and murdering people I, I, so I I worry that the the outlier maybe even a single outlier will come to drive policy and we've seen this in lots of different contexts around you know immigration decarceration etc so that's my that's my worry um and but, that's a legitimate worry i mean let's be let's be honest moral panics and people freaking out and political uh leaders whipping uh the population up into a froth to try and move a specific item forward has been a part of the criminal justice system since well since we started keeping records essentially but I also think that, there, I still think that there's a moment and I think projects like this, podcasts, uh, I think it, uh, things like this, uh, YouTube videos, interviews, I think this is the moment that we as criminologists and as academics who study crime, I think it's really important that we start making those conversations and moving those conversations beyond um, the ivory towers, so to speak, and move it into this public dialogue. It's, Heck, I expect you, lots of people to disagree with what I'm saying here, and I frankly welcome that. I want to have those discussions with you because I think this is important, and I've seen the way we do it both ways, and I think this is a moment where we can actually make real change. So instead of just, I think it's time as academics, and it's time as thinking people that start having these real discussions, so when that moment comes, we'll have, a, we'll have the groundwork ready to start pushing back on that, which may be a way to, uh, to help. Blue sky, dreaming, idealistic. Well, I'm a grad student, but it's <laughs> we're supposed to be. But I do think that there's a chance, and I think that we should hold on to that chance and work to try and make it better if we can. So, concluding with sort of the, the big questions or the big issues, um, do you think that you know the whole contemporary situation or last several months have confirmed things that criminologists maybe knew or knew already or maybe it's challenged some basic assumptions that um you know we've been hard pressed to sort of move beyond i was just wondering kind of lessons for the discipline well the one thing i think that we've learned the one thing that i think we've confirmed confirmed sorry one of the i think is this idea of decarceration 
um, letting a certain portion of people out of prison isn't going to blow things up. Even as a prison officer, any correctional officers will tell you very clearly that there's 10% of the population that they deal with on a regular basis that are actually really dangerous. They're, 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 uh, they're troublesome. They're, there's troubled individuals. But 90% of the population is usually a lot more relaxed. And I think what we've seen, because of a lot of that 90% of that, that group isn't in prison right now. And of course, I'm, I don't know, that's not an actual statistic. I'm just right. telling you the way we discussed it, discussed it when, we were, when I was an officer. Um, but those people aren't in prison and we haven't seen crime rates blowing through the roof. So that, that I think has confirmed a lot of stuff that criminologists have been arguing for a while. As for what um, criminologists need to learn or what's challenged that, I think we as criminologists consistently underestimate the public's appetite or desire for punishment. And that's where looking at, the, for instance, these dialogues from uh, Aaron O'Toole on Twitter, a lot of the dialogues about how dare they give people in prison um, vaccines before right. XXX group gets it. That I think is something we not only underestimate, but it's something we typically overlook in trying to shape these dialogues. And I think that if we continue to overlook that and say, well, no, we, we know what's best here, we're going to end up with being ignored and sidelined as criminologists because we haven't taken the uh, the concerns and the issues face the public sees on a day-to-day basis seriously. Now, they're not. Now, I think that's something that's coming. That's something I start to see developing now. Um, and I think it's time that I think it's time for us to continue to challenge our own beliefs that this is automatically good and start engaging in those dialogues as distasteful and as irritating as they may occasionally be to try and push the dialogue in a different direction rather than just ignoring the dialogue and moving forward with our own, our own uh, perspectives. Right. Excellent. Well, I think that's it. Unless there's something important you think that we should cover that we didn't talk about. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting time to discuss prison. Prison's a extremely complicated place to work. Uh, it's even a very, very difficult place to uh, to live as a, as a prisoner. Um, and correctional officers, I think it's, I mean, if, if there's any CEOs listening to this, God bless you, you've had a rough go over here, stick it out. Um, it's it's not an easy way to do it. And we have to we have to be aware. And, and so when we talk about prisons, we can't just ignore them. We, we tend to like pretend they're society's garbage can and people think our problems go in there and they go away. But they don't, and those issues are still sitting there. And we need to be very, we need to be really cautious as in in our dialogues and how we have these discussions. So, as poorly worded as it is, I think that's <laughs> how I ended up. So, <laughs> excellent. Thanks, Will. Thanks for your contributions, and uh, have a great day. Thanks, Kevin. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Once again, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and most other places that podcasts are found. If you're in the Apple Podcast Store, give us a nice five-star rating. It helps with the search algorithm. And remember to follow us on social media. Twitter, it's at CCR underscore U of A. And subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash Center for Criminological Research. And like our videos and, uh, and subscribe. Thank you very much, and we hope you'll join us for the next one.